I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. We're continuing our study of the life of Abram at this point. Uh, He'll become Abraham pretty soon, but not quite yet. In the past few weeks, we have seen Abram called out of paganism uh, to the Lord to follow God wherever God would lead him, and he has led him to the promised land, to Canaan, and he has promised that he would give him this land, but a famine struck, and Abram panicked and went off to Egypt, and God's promises even were threatened as Pharaoh took his wife, but the Lord preserved his wife and the promises. Abram saw the error of his ways and promptly headed back to the, to the land that was promised to him by the Lord, and And the Bible tells us there that he called upon the name of the Lord like he did at the beginning. And then last week we saw the episode with he and Lot. They both became wealthy men with lots of flocks, but the land could not support it, so they went their separate ways. Abram put his trust in the promises of God. Lot put his trust in wealth. Today we're going to see more of Lot's demise uh, as a great war breaks out in the area. We pick up the reading and... Chapter, one, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kader Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedar Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedar Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is, Kadesh and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. With Kedar Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all his possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people." After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. 
And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, my God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Ashkel, and Mamre take their share. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Well, there are lots of names and places strange to us listed here. Uh, I only uh, pronounce those, uh, I pronounce them with confidence so that you will think that I know what I'm saying and be impressed. It takes a little bit to to sift through all this history, Uh, but this text divides into three sections and really it's uh, setting the context for the last section. So first of all, you have verses 1 through 12, and it describes for us uh, a political military situation which provides the entire backdrop for the chapter. There was this king named Cater Laomer. He was from the area which is modern-day Iran. And he had come over to the Jordan River Valley around the Dead Sea, that's the Salt Sea that they're talking about in the text, and he had subdued that area. And there were several city-states in the region, five in particular that are mentioned here, including Sodom and Gomorrah, who were forced to become client states of Cater Laomer. And for 12 years they had to serve him until they finally got fed up and had enough and they rebelled against him. So Cater Laomer gets three of his allies to come over and make war and, and pay back these rebels. And so they ride down from the north and they defeat everyone in their path. They run the length of the, you get the Sea of Galilee to the north and the Jordan River runs down into the Dead Sea. Uh, all the way, the, the kings came all the way down the west side of that, all the way to south of the Dead Sea. Then they turned and started going back. And they basically wiped out everything in their path. When they went and turned north, They defeated the five local kings and tells us that two of those kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, met their demise in tar pits in the area around the Dead Sea. And as we know, Lot lived in Sodom, as it tells us. He was residing there and he gets caught up in this conflict and he ends up being taken captive and he has all of his possessions plundered, all that wealth that he was looking for. Uh, It's all captured. Then in the second section, verses 13 through 16, we see Abram's reaction to all this. A refugee from the battle comes and tells Abram the news that Lot, his nephew, has been captured. So Abram musters his 318 men and he pursues them, these five kings, over 100 miles. He tells them he goes all the way to Dan and Dan is in the very north of Israel. And he, he uh, divides his troops, defeats them in a night attack, and in doing so, he recovers all the plunder. And so he returns home. Now, all that's pretty exciting stuff if you're a history buff. But it's really, as I said before, just a backdrop 
to verses 17 through 24, because that's where the really important stuff uh, is going on in this chapter. In this last section, we see Abram's interaction with two kings who come out to meet him where he is encamped outside of Salem, which would later be called Jerusalem. And it is intended, as we see Abram's interactions with these two kings, we are intended to contrast his interactions with these two kings. Now let's look at what these two kings uh, do to for Abram. First we have the king of Sodom, assumedly the new king of Sodom, since the other is wearing asphalt tennis shoes now. Uh, this new king of Sodom comes out to meet uh, Abram. We don't know anything about this new king. It doesn't tell us anything about him. But we have already received two pieces of information about Sodom itself. Uh, verse, uh, first, that uh, Lot was living there. And verse 13 of the previous chapter, chapter 13, tells us that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So the king of Sodom comes to Abram to get his people, but he says Abram should receive all the plunder for his heroism. After all, he's gone 100 miles or more in pursuing these kings and defeating them, uh, really against the odds it would seem. Give me the persons but take the goods for yourself. Of course, he wants his people back, because if he's a new king and he doesn't have any people to rule over, he's not much of a king, is he? But he says, Abram, you take the goods, I'll take the people. And that was customary military etiquette for the day. Uh, if you win the battle, you get the goods. Now, the second king who visits Abram is the king of Salem, or Jerusalem. His name is Melchizedek, it tells us. And we don't know much about him, where he came from, or never really hear about him uh, after this episode in the Old Testament. But we are told that he is a priest of the God Most High. And he comes and he provides for Abram by putting on a feast. Uh, that would have been welcome to Abraham, I'm sure, after traveling so far and fighting, uh, fighting these battles and, and now residing there outside of, of Salem. And he comes out, and during the feast, he blesses Abram in the name of God Most High. And he also gives glory to God for the victory Abram has just experienced over the five foreign kings. It was God, Melchizedek says, that delivered these kings into your hand. And God should be blessed for that. Really, we learn more about God in this passage and what Melchizedek says than we do about Abram. The blessing on Abram is just a general blessing. Uh, then he gives glory to God for the victory that Abraham experienced. It wasn't much, uh, wasn't much credit given to Abram. Then let's look at Abram's reaction to each king. First to the king of Sodom. Verse 22 tells us that Abram says to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, now that means he's taking an oath. I mean, he's very serious about what he's saying now. This is a symbolic of someone who's taking an oath as he says what he says. I take an oath before God that I would not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours. So that thread, sandal strap, that's a figure of speech. Something small, small thread, a sandal strap would have been thicker. So I'm not taking... One thing from you, not a small thing, not a large thing. I'm not going to take one red cent from you. 
I won't, I won't have a, a million dollars from you and nothing in between. That's basically what he's saying. I don't want anything of yours. And here's the reason why. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. That's the reason he won't take anything. He doesn't want to be beholden to the Sodomites. Not associated with them in any way. Then we see his reaction to the king of Salem. Quite a different reaction. Since Melchizedek is, is God's priestly representative, Abram, after being blessed, having a, a, a blessing pronounced on him, and having the feast that, that uh, Melchizedek provides, and giving gratitude to God uh, in the, the blessing that he pronounces upon Abram and God, giving credit to the Lord for the victory in battle, Abraham, Abram, in response, gives 10% of his possessions to Melchizedek. Certainly uh, an, an activity that reflects gratitude for God for the victory that he has just, uh, just received over these five kings. Now, what's significant about these actions? We're meant, as I said before, to contrast uh, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom, and particularly the way that Abram responds to them. Because that's quite a different response than we might get save from someone who is not a follower of God. Well, here we find Abram facing temptation once again. We've already seen him fail to trust the Lord when he went to Egypt instead of staying in the land God had promised to him during a time of famine, no doubt, but he should have looked to God instead of looking to Egypt to help him in his time of need. Here, however, it seems that he has learned his lesson. Uh, he will not be beholden in any way to the wicked Sodomites. Now, undoubtedly, I mean, these are five kings. They've, they've caused havoc for hundreds and hundreds of miles and conquered peoples in their path. No doubt there is a lot of wealth at Abram's fingertips, which he could rightfully lay claim to as spoils of war. But Abram seems to be resolved not to make himself great in the world's eyes, by grabbing the wealth of the Sodomites. He will not be associated with them in any way. And it seems that Abram has a, a completely different agenda for his life than the rest of the world because who wouldn't, do the, who wouldn't grab that money, those possessions, that wealth that was rightfully his? seems that he's got a different agenda, a, a different trajectory for his life, uh, a different path that he's on than the rest of humanity, the rest of the world. His, his value system is opposite of the rest of the world around him. Because who wouldn't grab not only the wealth, but the power as well? I mean, Abram has conquered these five kings uh, who have conquered the, the, uh, the four kings in the area. And so now Abram, with all of his power, he could certainly rule in the area if he wanted to. He could grab all the land in the area if he wanted to with his 318 men who were obviously well-trained for war and his allies as well. But he doesn't go for that. We see the difference in his life reflected in the actions towards Melchizedek. Well, he accepts the feast Melchizedek provides. He receives the blessing from God that Melchizedek pronounces. And he responds to Melchizedek's praise of God 
Blessed be the God most high who has delivered you, your enemies into your hand. He responds to that by giving a tenth of everything he had to him. See, Abram's agreeing with him. He agrees that he is beholden to God. God is the one that has provided this victory for him. God is the one that has made promises to him and who is, who is blessing him. It's not the world that's blessing him. So God gets the first fruits as an act of worship and gratitude to the Lord. So instead of getting wealthy and becoming powerful in the world's eyes, Abraham, Abram gives the credit to God and shows his thanksgiving to God by giving the tithe to God's representative, the priest king Melchizedek. He looks to what God gives him, not what the world gives him. He could receive loads of wealth and power, but all he receives is the provision of God's priest king and the blessing of God that, that God's priest king pronounces. Let me repeat that because that's important. All that he receives is the feast, the provision of God's priest king and the blessing of God the priest king brings. That's all he had. Abraham had learned some things so far in his life. He's learned from his time down in Egypt. He's learned from the example the bad example of his nephew Lot. When he, went down, when he went down to Egypt, he was looking for some security. It was a time of famine. Uh, he wasn't sure uh, that he, he could live in the promised land that God had said was going to be his. He went down to Egypt looking for some security in his life, but he did not find it there. His compromise did not pay off at all. He actually fell into deeper insecurity by going down to Egypt. And that's a pattern throughout the history of Israel. They're always tempted to go to Egypt, to go back to Egypt. When they're, when they're on the Exodus and they've left and they're out in the wilderness and there's no food or water, they said, oh, it, wouldn't, it was so much better in Egypt. You know, we had the, the leeks and the onions and the melons and the fish and all that. And, and to, to hear them describe it, it was like a... It was like a vacation. But it was bondage and slavery and they were miserable when they were there. See, if we could just go back to Egypt, we would be provided for. Abram made that mistake. Moses is recording this for the Israelites on the Exodus and he's saying, look, don't be like your, don't be like your father Abraham in that respect. He went to Egypt. It didn't work out for him, but he left Egypt and he didn't go back. So don't go back to Egypt. And then... As Israel becomes a mature nation, their kings are going to look to Egypt as an ally sometimes to help them out instead of calling on the Lord. Abram found out that calling on the name of the Lord, trusting in the Lord, that's where true security is found. And then as he looked at Lot, Lot pursued wealth. Lot pursued uh, his joy, uh, his future, uh, his whole life on wealth. He looked at that valley and he saw that it looked to him like the Garden of Eden. It was all he could ever hope for and he went for it. 
and it's just turning to dust in his hands. And of course, we know the end of the story, that the whole place is going to be under fire and brimstone in just a few chapters. But here he is, losing his material possessions, being conquered by kings. Kidnapped, plundered, dwelling among wicked people, poor lot. Wealth gives no security, because it is insecure. Easy come, easy go, isn't that what they say? And that's what happened to Lot. It's only temporary. So Abram is learning where true security lies. Not in the blessings that the world offers, but the blessing of God. At this point, Abram could be a wealthy king, but he knows there's no security in that. You know, think about that. You know, he could become king of the whole area, but you know there's always some other guy, some other king somewhere else who's going to come in and try to take it from you. These things that the world would say are valuable, wealth, power, well, they're fleeting. They don't last. And I think Abram, Abram understood that. He grasped that. True power, true security, all these things are found in the Lord and in his promises. God is sovereign. God is eternal. God is lasting. God can provide everything that he needs. And he's learning that lesson. Now that brings us to think about this for our lives. What or who is your faith in? today. You know, the world would have the value of, yes, wealth. You need, to, you need to acquire wealth. You need to acquire power. And you will be secure. Jesus told a parable about that. He said in Luke 12, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And I believe possessions there, certainly the example he's about to give is one of material possessions. But possessions can mean more than material possessions. Let's read the rest of the parable. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Possessions can certainly mean material possessions in our world around us certainly promotes that. You need this. You need this new phone. You need this new car. You're constantly bombarded with a message of, of building up material possessions. Building up wealth. But possessions can be more than just physical possessions. Some people spend all their life making sure that they have a, a great name for themselves in their field, their career. And that's the most important thing. They're driven to do that, to achieve great things. And they have that. They possess it. It's what they want. That's what they're going after. It's what they want to grasp with their lives. Some people want to be great parents. They spend all of their energy and time pouring it into their children. And uh, hopefully their children turn out well. And when they, their children turns out, turn out well... They can say, soul, you've got great children. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. 
You can say, soul, I have a great career. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Soul, I'm very popular. I can relax and eat, drink, and be merry. Soul, I have a great name in the community, and people look up to me. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God's word says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And all those things that you've grasped, whose will they be? I love to do genealogical research. And, uh, and I have uh, done quite extensive work in, in my family. And you read the names. You, you see some of their statistics. But you don't really know much about them other than who their children were. and You don't know if they turned out, uh, if they were good parents or bad parents, because there's no record of much of what they did with their lives. You know that most of them were farmers, and they were either moderately successful, some were better, more successful than others, I'm sure. But what does it matter to me now? I, I just know names. Some of them I have pictures of. I don't know anything about them other than that, and... Nobody else knows who they are or really even cares. All that they have built up in their lives, what is it now? It matters not. Somebody else has their money. Not me. (laughs) Some of them made a name for themselves, but nobody really famous. But they're all dead. And the only thing that matters now as Jesus said, did they lay up treasures for themselves or were they rich towards God? Abram was rich toward God. What did he have? Let me repeat that sentence again. All he received was the provision, the feast of God's priest king and the blessing of God which flowed from the priest king. Well, Jesus Christ is the ultimate priest-king. He's prophet, priest, and king. And Melchizedek is a, is a pointer, a picture of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7 tells us so. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God, most high God, met Abram, Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Melchizedek, is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what his name means. And then he is also king of Salem. And that word Salem means peace. He is the king of peace. Shalom. Salem is a form of shalom. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So Melchizedek is a Picture of Jesus. He's a pointer to Jesus. Jesus is the the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the prince of peace, as we often note during Christmas season. The writer of Hebrew tells us that Jesus Christ has taken care of the most important thing for us, the state of our souls. He has become the source of eternal salvation, Hebrews chapter 5 tells us. And he's going on and telling us, that Jesus Christ is the greatest high priest. And they're saying in their minds, and he's anticipating the argument, well, 
Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. He was not of the tribe of Levi. So how could he be a priest? And he's saying, no, Jesus is not a Levite, Levitical priest. He is a priest from the order of Melchizedek. The former priests, the Levitical priests, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Abram received the provision made by Christ or God's priest king, and he received the blessing that the priest king gave to him. And that was all he needed. And that's all we need. We, we need the provision that Christ has made as the great high priest to save us from our sins, to be the perfect sacrifice for us so that our souls might be rescued. That's, that's what it's all about. That's what really matters. And to have the blessings, not of this world but the blessings that come to us through Christ, as he, the writer, uh, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Jesus Christ. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Your soul is the most important thing. If you pursue those other things... If Abram had pursued power and wealth from the world around him, it would be very tenuous. It's it's an enslaving. Uh, He would always have to be on the lookout because these things could be taken away from him, like they were taken away from Lot or like they were taken away from the king of Sodom and Gomorrah when these other kings came in. These things are tenuous and they're always under threat. So it is with our lives. The wealth that we accumulate, the status that we accumulate, whether our kids turn out well or not, these things are tenuous and they don't last and we can't take it with us. It's the soul that's the most important. And Abram, I think, recognizes that. And he puts his trust in in the provision that is given to him through God's priest king. And we should do the same. Now I've quickly included Genesis 15.1 here, uh, and just in conclusion, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, if you have a New King King James or NIV, it, it translates it, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. And I, it can be translated either way when you look at the Hebrew. Both are true. And I think, but I like the older translation better. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. See, we're not looking to the blessings, we're looking to the blesser. He is the reward, and he is an exceedingly great reward. And if we have him, if we're rich towards him, then that's all we need. That's what we were created for. The chief end of man. First catechism question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end. His chief purpose, the reason that he was created, 
was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We, we tend to talk a lot about the glorifying God. How can we glorify God? And sometimes we forget about the enjoying God, having this covenant relationship with God that we're going to look at next week. Uh, that's a reward in and of itself to have God because He's eternal. He's lasting. He cannot be taken from us if we are in Christ. Where is your, where is your faith today? Is it in the thing that matters most? Or in these fleeting, tenuous, temporary things the world offers? Let's pray.